I come across something that's just so ridiculous that it just makes you laugh. Something where somebody just thoroughly misses the point. I, I had a dog when I was a kid, and she never would sleep in the doghouse. It would be pouring down rain. I lived in Oregon, so it's raining 10 months out of the year. And there it is, just laying right next to the doghouse. You know, we'd leave it outside while we were away. Then we would come back. It would be soaking wet right next to the dry doghouse. And I thought, you're missing the point of the doghouse. It's there to keep you dry. Another time I I read a cartoon in a fishing magazine that I got. And uh, it had a husband and a wife in a fishing boat. And the thought bubble over the wife's head said, My goodness, George, let him have it. It's only a worm. She thoroughly missed the point of what George was doing fishing. Again, it's it's humorous, but she she missed the point. Probably my my favorite was I went to a diner, and I'm not sure where it was. But, uh, you know, you have like, you can get a burger, then they, they list all the different options you can add to it. Well, they had a vegetarian burger, and underneath the options, it said, add bacon. (laughs) Miss the point. Miss the point altogether. Um, And in our text this morning, we have two responses to Jesus's signs. The first response comes from those who saw the sign, but they missed the point altogether. They saw the signs, but they they missed what the signs were pointing at. They missed the deeper significance of those signs. But the second response, although at first it seems to be a representative of that first group of people, we see something incredible happen as Jesus helps him to see the point of the signs. Jesus draws him to see the deeper reality behind the signs that he had done. This morning, we'll begin the first of four sermons looking at the discourse of Jesus and Nicodemus. It is such a rich section in John's gospel that we're going to spend four weeks unpacking what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and John's reflection on it. So we'll begin this morning looking at John 2 verse 23 and over the next four weeks we'll look at through to chapter 3 verse 21. And it deserves four separate sermons because it is so deep and there's so much there that I want to draw out. So as we come this morning to look at the problem in this text, I want you to keep this question in mind. What is the response to Jesus' signs? And you can ask it this way. What is the right response to Jesus' sign? As you are able, please stand with me as we read together from the Gospel according to John. It is printed for you in your bulletin as well. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, 
a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, as we come before your very throne, as we come to see and marvel, not just at the signs, but at what the signs point us to, the deeper reality that the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May each one of the saints gathered here this morning have eyes to see and to behold the wonders out of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. Just before the Passover, Jesus had turned water into wine. And he cleansed the temple. Two signs that pointed to something. And remember, John doesn't use the word miracle. Instead, he calls them signs. He ends his letter, how we began this sermon series, by telling us that Jesus did lots of signs. Uh, in fact, if the world could not contain all the books that could be written just detailing the outline of Jesus' ministry that he did all here on earth. But what he did include was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in him. That's the reason John wrote his gospel. And notice he said written. These signs were written. Now there is, of course, a great distance between what we see with our eyes and what we hear when we read something. Jesus says after his resurrection, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But in our text this morning, we have a whole group of people who have seen Jesus' signs and believed. And every preacher rejoices and says, Great, they've seen and they believe. But then verse 24 provides us with a little skepticism. What does John mean when he says Jesus didn't trust them? John means that Jesus doesn't believe in their kind of belief. Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he knows what is in man. And this, of course, is not a statement of a a wise man who has sat back and, and watched how humanity is and has gained from experience knowing what is in man. This is the creator examining his creation and seeing what is in them. This is a statement of a creator as he looks at his creatures that he fashioned and made, but who have rebelled against their own creator. Jesus is saying, I don't trust your motivations for believing in me. I know that you are sinful and that your only motivation in your fallen and sinful condition is to please yourself. Jesus, in fact, knows Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which we read moments ago. The heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can know the heart of man? Jesus says, I can. I know what is in man. And Jeremiah concludes in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Do you really know your own motivations? Do you, can you say with any kind of certainty that this is exactly why you do what you do? Of course we try to. Some of the time we succeed in doing what we intended to do as we intended to do it. But most of the time, many of the times, we don't know our own motivations. As Paul in Romans 7 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I don't know about you, but that is the testimony of my life. The things I want to do, I find so challenging to do. The things that I hate, that I want to flee from, are easy and right at hand. Jesus knows the heart of man, and he needs no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knows what is in man. And we are even worse judges of others' motivations. How do you respond when someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in Jesus' name? What's your response? Jesus tells the parable of the sower to illustrate that there are many different ways that people receive him. Some seed fell on the path and birds came and ate it. Others fell on the rocky ground and it sprang up quickly, but for lack of depth, it withered away. Whenever I I hear that, I always think of Pennsylvania because it it seems like Pennsylvania is just one giant rock with a little layer of dirt on it. Uh, But... It sprang up quickly. It did grow, but it didn't last because it had no roots. It had no depth, and so it withered away. And others fell among the thorns and were soon choked out. Only good soil, only the soil that had been prepared to receive the word, bear fruit. And when Jesus describes this parable to his disciples, he says that this is because of tribulation. Or the cares of the world that the word springs up but then is choked out or it doesn't bear any fruit. And so it is with those who believe in Jesus merely for the signs that they see. They saw something. But Jesus doesn't trust them because their trust in him is formed not by a sinner in need of a savior but a trust born out of the spectacle. They saw something unbelievable and sensed greatness, and so they believed. But their belief is superficial, and it will not endure tribulation or the cares of this world. It springs up in a moment, but then it is snuffed out because it has no depth. And so their faith, their belief in Jesus, will not endure public scrutiny and the inner turmoil that attends followers of Christ. In fact, throughout the Gospels, Jesus chastises this superficial faith. 
Jesus in John 6, after feeding the 5,000, condemns them because they seek him, not because of the sign, but because their bellies have been filled. He then encourages them not to work for food that perishes, but for the food that never perishes, that the Father will give them, namely Jesus himself. You see, they saw the sign and they believed. Their bellies were filled. But Jesus doesn't trust that because it's not founded on the object of their faith, Jesus Christ. It is here we see one of the key ingredients to true saving faith, a recognition of sin. You see, some believed in Jesus' name because in the signs, they saw someone who might be a political leader, someone who might deliver them from Roman oppression, who might validate the teachings of their sect. In fact, there may be as many views of Jesus as there were people in the crowd. And they all have designs for him. They all have something they want him to do. And they see the signs, they see the greatness, and they think, he can do this for me. He can accomplish this great feat. He can uh, validate my theological perspective as a Pharisee. But none who believed in Jesus' name in, that, in this way had come to recognize that apart from Jesus, they were lost in sin. None had saw that he was the Lamb of God who could take away the sin of the world. You see, without a a recognition of your lost condition, without seeing that you are a desperate sinner in need of a Savior, your belief will only ever arise to the level that the first sign of trouble or of prosperity will snuff out. That kind of belief Jesus doesn't believe in. Why then do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus because your mom or your dad does? Or is your faith kind of like a magic talisman? You believe so you'll have good luck. Or do you believe because you are hoping that Jesus will give you your best life now? A good litmus test is to examine your faith when you are confronted with hardship or difficulty. How do you respond? Some of us are problem solvers. When a trial comes, we look for ways that we can get out of it. Trials become a way for us to test our own self-reliance. But that is not really the purpose of trials. That's not the purpose of us facing adversity and suffering. And if your first thought is not to hit your knees in prayer seeking the Lord to deliver you, then watch out. Others of you may encounter trials and then sink into despair. It's the Eeyore mentality. Woe is me. God doesn't love me. And of course, we're, we're not just internal about that. We want everyone to know that God doesn't love us because X and Y has happened and that should never happen to somebody who God loves. And so we fall into despair and we feel sorry for ourselves. And self-pity is really just a form of pride. And this response also misses the points of our trials. You see, if you were to follow each one of these men and women who believed and they saw the signs and they believed, if you follow the trajectory of their life, I guarantee you would find a moment where they would be tested, where their faith would be tried. And it's in those moments 
And I say trial in the sense of testing, which could also come in the form of prosperity. It doesn't have to be adversity. The Lord tests us in many different ways. Maybe it was that moment when Jesus said in John 12, verses 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The problem, you see, is that we have developed what Luther called the theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. He said in his Heidelberg Disputations that, quote, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. What he means, I can illustrate this way. How many of you have said or heard a Christian friend tell you about God opening doors or giving one peace, about buying a larger home, or uprooting their family to take a better job, a more well-paying job? How many of you have heard somebody tell that to you? That's, but have you ever heard someone say, I really feel God calling me to sell everything and give it to the poor? Have you ever heard somebody say that and say they have a peace about it? That they feel God calling them to that? That's a theology of glory. We may recognize and reject the prosperity gospel, but when pressed, we may find that what God wants lines up perfectly with what I want, which also lines up perfectly with what the culture tells me I should want. A theology of the cross views our suffering through the lens of redemption, and it sees God there in our suffering with us. Instead of shrinking back from it, she presses in. Instead of defining it as not God's will, he sees it as a divine appointment meant to lead him to a deeper trust, a deeper belief in Jesus. But most of these people who saw the signs and believed will not enter into the sufferings of Christ. Instead, they embrace a theology of glory. And they grasp at whatever comes their way that might alleviate their suffering. They look for everything to get out of suffering. And in that way, they reject Jesus. And they reject the cross as he calls each of us to take up and follow him. Which are you? Are you of those who believed but Jesus didn't trust? Or are you one of those who believed and Jesus has helped To see the truth. And that's what we notice next. Notice in verse 1. At first it seemed that Nicodemus would be the chief representative of those who believed in Jesus' name because of the sign. The repeated refrain in verse 23 through 25 is man. Man. There were men. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to him because he knew all men and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man. Do you see the repetition of man? Jesus is identifying, or John is identifying Nicodemus as the kind of person who has seen the signs and believed, but he didn't see the deeper significance of them. He didn't see what the signs were pointing to. But as the conversation unfolds, and then as the gospel unfolds, Nicodemus proves to be someone different altogether. Because in reality, for us to embrace a theology of the cross, it requires a supernatural intervention. And as Jesus will make clear in verse 3, it will require a new heart. It will require that you are born from above, that you are born again. And the primary difference between these two different responses is that Jesus invites Nicodemus to see the sign, but also what the sign points to. Here we are drawn back to the question that we are going to return to over and over again in the Gospel of John. What is a sign? And why does John include them as so prominent, at least in the first 11 chapters of his Gospel? A sign is a manifestation through the person of Jesus, of God's work in the world. It shows God in miraculous, in wonderful ways, God at work in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Signs, they're used throughout Scripture, often to authenticate, sometimes in very awe-inspiring ways, Think in terms of signs and wonders in the Exodus. What happened to Israel when they are led out with a strong arm of the Lord? God demonstrates his power in signs and wonders through the plagues with authenticating, of course, the ministry of Moses and as somebody who comes from God. But as we noted earlier, the sign was meant to draw attention to the things signified. Jesus was always pressing them to see the deeper reality that his signs pointed to. They saw the sign, but they missed the point. They missed the thing that was signified by the sign. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with a statement that Jesus answered as if it was a question. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He certainly compliments Jesus and recognizes that the signs he does can only be done by somebody who has either been in the presence of God or who is God or who has God with him. Little does he know that he is addressing God in the flesh, the Word who is incarnate, the Son of God. He sees the signs and he notices that they authenticate Jesus' ministry But he misses the full import of what these signs point to. But his statement, of course, like many questions, like many things that people say in the Gospels, are veiled questions. He's really asking, who are you? What are you doing here? Who called you? Who gave you the authority? What are you teaching? These are the questions that are wrapped up in this statement. And Jesus, as is often the case throughout the Gospel, He answers the questions that are often hidden behind our statements. 
And we'll notice this especially in chapter 4 with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. She is very evasive with Jesus' questions, but he knows exactly the right thing to get to the thing that's closest to our heart, the thing that we desire, the thing that we want to know desperately, but oftentimes we're afraid to ask. And that, of course, is from what we read previously. He knows what is in man. He knows the heart of man. He knows the questions you have before you even ask them. And there are no hard questions for God. There are no questions that will offend God. God is confident to answer and to assure you in all of your questions. So in his answer, beginning with its distinct introductory statement, truly, truly, that signals that Jesus is about to say something. He's basically saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say. It is God's truth. Truly, truly, amen, amen. And he guides, he guides Nicodemus unto the truth. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're like me, Nicodemus must have thought that this just came out of left field. I didn't ask anything about the kingdom of God. What are you talking about, born again? And in fact, in verse 4, Nicodemus shows that he is very puzzled by Jesus' response to him. And as modern Americans, the kingdom of God is maybe not foremost in our thinking. We're, we're not conditioned to be awaiting and thinking about the kingdom of God like a first century Jew might have been. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, we're going through Daniel in our family worship and In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreams of an image. He sees a giant statue, and Daniel gives him the dream and the interpretation. And in the image is made of a head of gold and a chest of arms of silver. Its middle and thighs are of bronze, and its legs of iron with feet made partly of iron and partly of clay. And these, Daniel tells him, represent different kingdoms that will come after him. And his kingdom is represented by the head of gold. But then, out of nowhere, a rock that is cut out by no human hands, it rolls down and it crushes the image and it falls to the dust. But then the rock begins to grow and it fills the whole world. And Daniel interprets that rock in this way. Chapter 2, verse 44, he said, In those days of those kings the kings of iron and clay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. You see, the Jews interpreted this variously to mean that the kingdom of God would come with great military and political power. It would crush all the kingdoms of the world and it would grow and expand to cover the whole earth. To see the kingdom of God means to participate in it, to be a part of it. One scholar says, although not everyone was included in this kingdom, Jews in Jesus' day generally believed that all Israelites would share in the world to come, with the exception of those guilty of apostasy or some other blatant sin. In fact, John only talks about the kingdom of God here 
in chapter 3 and also in chapter 19 when Jesus is being tried by Pilate. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. For if it was, then I would call my people and they would come and we would fight against you. But my kingdom is not of this world. But otherwise, throughout John's gospel, John uses a more generic term that means essentially the same thing. And it's eternal life. To have eternal life meant to participate in, that is to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is scratching his head. I'm an Israelite. I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. Of course I am. All Israelites are going to be there. They're going to participate. They're going to see the kingdom of God because we're God's chosen people. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is upsetting his paradigm. He's upsetting what he thinks about the kingdom of God by saying, unless a person is born from above, unless a man is born from above again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus shows that more than just coming to Jesus at night, Nicodemus is in the dark about the significance of the kingdom of God, about Jesus' sign. John is showing us that when he says Nicodemus came at night and said to him. And see, it's not just that it's night, but that Nicodemus doesn't understand. He's in the dark. He sees a sign, but he doesn't see the thing that the sign points to. He doesn't see that Jesus is the kingdom of God breaking into this present world. He doesn't see that the sign bears witness to the fact that the latter-day kingdom of God was coming. It was breaking into this evil age in Christ. Both his turning water into wine, which we talked about as the dawning of the new creation, but also his cleansing of the temple, showing his authority as a king, showing that he had the right as a son to come in to his father's house and purge it of evil. Those signs were meant to point to the deeper reality that the kingdom of God was at hand in Jesus. But how how could Nicodemus see these things when Jesus says you cannot unless you are born again? And here John is using a play on words. Born again can also mean born from above. It's clear from the context that Jesus means born from above. But Nicodemus doesn't understand that, and he thinks it means born again. Uh, we're going to spend the next, uh, next week, we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, talking all about the new birth. So we're not going to dig into detail about that today and save it for next week. But this morning, I want you to notice that the kind of belief that Jesus trusts are the kind that he gives. The kind of faith that Jesus trusts, the kind of faith that he entrusts himself to, is only the kind that Jesus gives. It's not rest on human will or exertion. It's not based on your religious zeal. I'm a Pharisee. I should be a shoe-in for the kingdom of God. It doesn't rest on your pedigree. I have Abraham as my father. None of these guarantees that your belief is trustworthy. In fact, the Confession of Faith in chapter 14, section 2 says this, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, 
sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Now you notice how passive those verbs are? Accepting, receiving, resting upon Christ alone. Here, the main point is the main point of all of Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. From the beginning to the end, it's all of grace. It is all accomplished by God. And it, in fact, that's what we find unfolding in these, uh, this discourse with Nicodemus. We see that God, for the Father, plans our redemption. God the Son, He executes the Father's plan to redeem a people. And God the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to the heart's of those the Father had planned to save. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be unfolding that as we look next week at how the Spirit applies the work of redemption and then how the Son purchases that redemption and then finally how the Father planned it from the beginning. See, Jesus is showing Nicodemus that to participate in the kingdom of God, to have eternal life, you must be born from above. And that is why seeing signs and believing because you saw them is not enough. But Jesus leads Nicodemus into the truth. And this is what's so amazing as the gospel unfolds. Because Nicodemus shows up again in the gospel of John. Twice, actually. First, at the end of chapter 7. They are fighting over the people and the Pharisees are fighting together about who Jesus is. The people say, this could be the Christ. This could be the prophet, the one that Moses talked about. And the Pharisees are over on this side. They're saying, you guys are ignorant. You don't even know the law. This is not the Christ. This, look at, you're just uh, amazed at his signs. But nobody good comes from Nazareth. We know that. We have the law. And out of the midst of that dispute, Nicodemus speaks and he says this in John 7, 51. He says, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now imagine, in our, we understand this most in our polarized culture. right? You have your talking points on this side. You have your talking points on this side. If you're on this side, you better not say something that this side agrees with. And out of the midst of that polarized people versus the Pharisees, Nicodemus speaks and he defends Jesus. He takes his life into his hands, essentially. And he says, wait a second, guys. Do we judge a man without first hearing him? But it doesn't end there. The next time we see Nicodemus is after the death of Jesus. He assists Joseph of Arimathea with the burial of Jesus by bringing 75 pounds of costly embalming spices of myrrh and aloe. This is an exorbitant amount. Amount fit for a king. And most commentators believe that Nicodemus recognized that Jesus was the king. That the kingdom of God had come in Jesus. And that his last act to care for the body of Jesus is his recognition that he was in fact king. Now, John doesn't comment on whether or not Nicodemus was a believer or what happened to him after these events. Did he remain someone who merely saw the signs? 
Or did he recognize what the signs were pointing to? What about you? We sit here in northeast Pennsylvania some 2,000 years later and hear about the signs that Jesus did. What do you see? Do you see the kingdom of God coming in all its glory in the person and work of Jesus? Or do you see a great man who lived, who did some interesting things and then died? You see, your response matters. The evidence is there. It clearly authenticates that Jesus is God. But will you be drawn with eyes of faith to see and receive and rest in him for salvation? Since faith in signs is not enough to see through to the deeper reality, we must be born from above to see the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we cry out to you that we may behold the wondrous things that your signs, that the signs that Jesus did in his life that are recorded here for us in John's gospel, that we would see the deeper reality that they point to, that we would not miss the point that Jesus came, that his coming meant The kingdom of God was coming. And that like that rock that crushed the kingdoms of this world, we have watched his kingdom expand so that we, thousands of miles away and thousands of years later, are recipients of the gospel of John. That we can hear and see the signs and behold the deeper reality that those signs point to. Jesus May our hearts be stirred towards faith in him as we accept, as we receive, and as we rest in him alone for our salvation. For we pray this in his strong name. And amen. Amen. Before we come to the table, let's turn together in our bulletins and sing Amazing Love, which is printed for you there.